Hell yeah. Hello everyone, this is Jose Arreta with the O3XX series. Today's special guest is recently retired Command Master Chief, Jody Fletcher. A bit about Jody. Jody served three decades in the United States Navy. He began his journey in October of 1992 and ended his journey in 2021. Jody spent the first two decades of his Navy career in the Special Operations Community as a Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman, also known as a SARC. Jody gaining a meta perspective and deep love for the investment of people now focuses his efforts in coaching, leadership, and culture consulting. Outside of his passion in cultivating moral and ethical excellence, Jody enjoys time with his family and surfing. So yeah, 47. Jody, yeah. how you doing, man? I'm, I feel great. Well, you know, got the body of like a 70-year-old probably, but I feel good. Yeah. Mind of a 14-year-old in the body of a 70-year-old. I was going to ask that after you said that I'm like, holy shit, like I'm 34 and I can't imagine what your body feels like, you know, doing all that time and, you know, not light work. No. And I think, uh, you know, I always say we age in dog years in the military, you know, it's, it's for every year you've been in, it's, it's, you know, probably six or seven years worth of toll on your body, especially as you get older. Right. Yeah. I was talking to a, one of our fellow two, eight guys, a senior guy to us. And he was, he called me the other night and he was talking about, you know, coming, coming home from the gym. I think he's like 40, he's 41 or 42 now. And he's like, man, I just don't recover the same. He's like, it's not the same. He's like, I hit this point, you know, in my late thirties where it was like a wall and like, I didn't want to believe it. Didn't want to believe it. And he's like, it's just something changed. I can't, he's like, I can't, you know, I can't go hard. Like I used to, I mean, I can, but I pay the toll for it afterwards, but yeah, that's exactly it. I used to do a lot of running and I, I had to just kind of come to grips with that as well and be like, all right, you know, I'm kind of over it. Now I work out just to stay in shape and, and stay fit, happy, healthy, all that good stuff. But, uh, cause I was training up for a big race and my wife was like, my body was just breaking down and we had already, my buddy and I had already, you know, like paid the fees and got the Airbnb and like, we were ready to go. And my body was just not keeping up with the training and I was getting frustrated. And she's like, babe, you know, at some point, at some point you've got to kind of just realize, you know, what do you want to be doing? And so I thought about it and, and what I want to be doing when I'm in my sixties and seventies is still surfing. And so, you know, I called my buddy and I was like, Hey bro, I'm going to, I'm going to have to back out. And cause my wife said, she's like, why don't you go on a surf trip instead? And I was like, okay, sold. Yeah. <laughs> That was so a hard was really like, Yeah, that was the last time I, you know, I, I kind of quit because my hips were hurting real bad. My back was hurting real bad. And, you know, at some point you just got to stop abusing your body like that. And, uh, you know, so that was it. Yeah. And that's something as far as like joints goes, you know, all of our, all of our sockets are, you know, protected by cartilage and cartilage lining and you can't get that back. You know, you can only wear that stuff down so much. And there are things you can do that like to prevent the degradation of, of those areas. But once that cartilage is gone, it doesn't regenerate, you know? Um, and then you start wearing things and, and, and moving them in weird motions and it causes a ton of problems like throughout your body. So um, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I know we all are, we have ailments and I'm with you there. Cause I'm just like trying to avoid getting anything <laughs> metal put in my body as long as I can because 
you don't know how that's going to go either, but, um, so yeah, man, do you want to, so I, I'm obviously interested in, in your story and what pushed you into serving and you just recently retired. So, um, or you're, you're still in that process, I guess. Right. Yeah. I've got, I think about three weeks left on terminally technically, you know, but, uh, I walked across the stage in June. I had a whole bunch of time built up leave and, you know, PTAD, all that good stuff. So I, gosh, I probably had four months almost of, you know, but, well, maybe not quite that much, but I had a lot of time uh, to, you know, take, I was doing regular leave and then PTAD and then all that. So yeah, June was when I was officially done. Nice, man. That's awesome. So you did, how, uh, what did you do 20 or? A little over 29. I stopped, you know, oh, damn. yeah, I was going to go to 30 was the original plan. And just, you know, everybody says when you know, you know, and I knew I was ready and just seemed right. Literally asked the magic eight ball and it said, you should definitely do it. <laughs> so I dropped papers the next day. Damn. Were people shocked? I, I think I'd been talking about it enough that just kind of bouncing it off people. And I went in and talked to the boss. I was working for, for um, the, you know, the meth general at the point at that point. And we talked, he was incredible, awesome leader, just a, an amazing, amazing guy. And he said, are you sure you really want to do it? Cause you know, and he, he told me, I, I, I think you could go here and I think you could do that. And, you know, I, I just said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it. And I've been coaching for about a year at that point in the, in the evenings and, and, and on the weekends or whatever. And that's just kind of where I saw myself going. And my daughter's got a year left in high school so I can be home for that. And I just felt like I needed to get out of the way too. A whole bunch of people were promoted that year. And I just, I was, it just felt right. And in so many different ways, it felt right. And then of course, when you retire, everybody asks, how are you doing? You know, what's it like? Or are you doing okay? I'm like, bro, it's awesome. <laughs> everybody should do this. <laughs> you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to encourage people to get out before their time, but don't be afraid of it. I'm, I'm having a great time and I feel awesome. And spending time with my family, having time for myself. It's things that we don't always experience when we're in. And so that's been amazing. Yeah, I, uh, a lot of guys asked me when I got out, but I got out in 2011, you know, I did four years and 10 months. Um, and uh, I think about two years after I got out, they're like, you know, what's it like? And I was like, it's kind of just the same, man. Like, no one's telling me what to do. I just get up every day at three in the morning and start PTing. And then I do that about two more times throughout the day. And it's the same thing. And, you know, and, you know, the, I kind of dealt with like bodily issues afterwards, but besides that, I mean, it was just the same thing. Like I really didn't, not that I wasn't, you know, creative or anything back then. It was just, that's kind of what got me through was just a bunch of PT, just staying in that same frame of mind. It's definitely one of those areas that you've got to, I feel that people go one way of one way or the other, right? 
I've seen people that have retired and gotten out and you can tell they don't PT much anymore, but that's, maybe that's what they want also, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're over it. Um, I like to be outside. I like to stay fit as much as I can, not training for anything in particular anymore, other than I do train to try to be stronger in the water, just, you know, for the sake of being able to surf and, and all that kind of good stuff, but really to stay healthy. I have uh, Hashimoto's and hypothyroid. So that's the one, you know, where if, you, if you're not careful, you can gain a ton of weight. So I try to be mindful of what I eat, but I also don't, you know, I don't necessarily go crazy about it. I just, uh, if, if I've had some cake like I did yesterday and this morning for breakfast, then, you know, I'll PT a little harder, like whatever. But I don't, uh, it, for me, Jose, it's interesting because it, it was, it's been good to, to get rid of my schedule, right? In the sense right. of I was so regimented, you know, I would wake up at four, kind of like you. My deal was I, I've got a, I ride gravel bike. And so I would, you know, ride my bike for an hour. Um, which is awesome. If nobody rides in the dark, I highly recommend it. If, you know, on trails, it's pretty awesome. So I would go for my bike ride, come back, stretch, do all that stuff, go to work, you know, take a shower, go to work. And now it's, it's awesome. And I still wake up at like six. That's when the sun starts coming through the window, wake up, feed the animals. You know, if there's waves, I'll go surf. If there's not, I might go paddle or go for a bike ride. Or sometimes I just sit in the chair and read. Or, or hang out or whatever. So that's been the piece for me because I had such a regimented schedule for, for so long, really, that it's it's been very nice to just kind of pull back and say, okay, well, if I don't do the yard today, I'll do it tomorrow. It's not, not a big deal. Because yeah. when you're in, the weekend is everything. You're like, all right, I've got 48 hours to you know mow the yard and do this and do that and, and all these things. And then you're right back in, in it on Monday morning. And so it's been really cool for me, at least to just be very casual about everything. Yeah. That's a long time of living that lifestyle to, you know, kind of forget, <laughs> kind of forget there's things out there that you can enjoy with your own free time, you know, all the time anyway. But, um, so when, so when did you, when did you join? I joined in 1992, October, I was 12 days after I turned 18. Wow. Damn. Did you know, I mean, was, was, was serving something that you, you know, had thought about before then, or that's pretty young, you know, to, to decide. I know a lot of, a lot of kids, you know, you hear about kids getting waved in when they're like 17 and their parents got to sign off and doing all that. But like, we've talked about, like, you kind of don't even know yeah, technically you're an adult, but you don't, you're not like, you don't know what the world is yet. So I was a military brat. My dad was, you know, he was a corpsman. He was a Vietnam era guy, retired as a chief at 24 years. So I thought it was very cool that he could help people. And I knew that I wanted to get, actually, I wanted, you know, just to be in the special operations world. Of course, didn't really know about recon at the time. So I, I joined wanting to be a SEAL because uh, that's what you hear, right? That's, that's what you see. And that's what in the Navy markets. But I also knew I wanted to be a corpsman because I wanted to be able to help people. And I could run, run like nobody's business. I could swim like a fish, but I could not do pull-ups. So when I hit boot camp and I did the little SEAL screener thing, you know, I couldn't do the pull-ups. And I think we had to do them, 
don't remember if we had to do them before or after the swim. But anyway, I could, like I say, I was a cross country guy in high schools. So I was running like low five, high, high four minute miles and could swim fast as well. But just, you know, I was, I was a stick who had never had to pull his body weight. So uh, everything happens for a reason, you know, and I ended up in field med school, which is obviously where I was planning to go. And well, if I, once I could uh, pass that screener. So by the end of field med, I could do 20 dead hangs, like nobody's business. Right. But my, the, the recon guys came to screen and I was like, Oh, what's that? But they wouldn't at, at that time. And, and it's interesting how history repeats itself because we're right back there now where you have to go to a hospital out of core school and, and field med. So I couldn't even take their screener at the time. So then I went to my first hospital in Jacksonville, Florida and got on the, like the IA team. And I ended up in Somalia. Long story short, I, met a force recon corpsman who was not on our ship, but a plane had gone down, a, a C-130, and they were diving on it for the, you know, all the remains and the black box and all that kind of stuff. And they were on our ship for the night because, I don't know, their ship was gone or so, whatever it was. But anyway, <clears throat> I was working on the ward on the ship and this fellow corpsman came up and he was wet, in wet camis and stuff. And he said, hey, you guys mind if I use the washer and dryer because you know my team were diving and this is all we've got and the guy that was on on shift and i just happened to be there the guy that was on shift was like no man sorry that's just for our linens which was not true we all used all the corpsmen used that thing right so i caught the guy on the hall i had no idea who he was i just knew he was a corpsman you know fellow corpsman i caught him in the hall and i said hey bro i come on in like whatever 30 minutes um i think i even I told him to meet me there, whatever. So did their laundry. I gave him a whole bunch of scrubs, you know, to wear while they did their laundry or, or we did their laundry. And so I was just sitting there talking to that guy. And he's, of course, asking me, I was a young third class, I think. And he was asking me what my plans were. And I was kind of told him what I just told you. Oh, I, you know, I want to be a SEAL. Um, I, I, I really just wanted to work around amazing people that wanted to be there, right? That was really what it was about. And I asked him, what do you, what do you do? And so he just started explaining, you know, the reconnaissance community and he didn't oversell it. In fact, he undersold it. You know, he, he kind of gave me the, the pitch of we're the underdogs of the underdogs. Nobody knows who we are. You know, we're the bastard children, the redheaded stepchild. And that's what drew me to it. And he said, you'll never work with a better group of dudes. And I was hooked, man. He, he told me that they just started this thing called the Recon Corman Pipeline. And I should look into it when I got back stateside. So I talked to him for quite a while, right? And there's an interesting hook to the story. So I got back and I applied for it. I went to the career counselor. It was a thing. They didn't even know what it was. They had to make a bunch of calls. It was a SEAL who actually screened me, right? There was a SEAL at the, at the hospital. And... I mean, I blew that test out of the water because now I could do pull-ups and I could also swim, you know, like a seven minute 500 and run, you know, like mid fives for, I don't know, it was a four mile run, whatever it was. But that dude was trying to talk me and he's like, I can get you into buds right now. And I, and I told him, I'm like, no, man, I'm, you know, I appreciate it, but I'm really into this recon thing. Of course, I'd already been to field med and I 
you know, I grew up around the Marines. My dad was a, 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 a uh, you know, a corpsman with the Marines for his entire career. So that was what I knew and it just felt right. So if you look at my, my paperwork, it says, uh, he screened me and it said for forest, like trees, like forest recon pipeline. It wasn't even called the forest recon pipeline. It was just a recon pipeline, but you know, it was so far back that nobody knew. So I went into the pipeline and, and it was, you know, year and a half, two year process. Uh, it's five or six schools back to back. But now fast forward to when I was in Iraq, the, my first, uh, well, my only tour to Iraq, I was in, you know, a team and I was a, a, a new chief and they're my team leader. Of course we did the full work up and trained and all that stuff, but I, I don't remember at what point it was, but we were, I knew he had been in Somalia. And we started talking, right? And just sharing stories, you know how we do. And he said something about being on a ship and a corpsman hooked him up with, with his corpsman, talked to another corpsman. And long story short, this dude who I'd never met, right, until obviously being in his team, was one of the guys on that team that, that you know, I hooked up with the, with the scrubs and all that stuff. And now... I don't know, however many years later, it would have been a decade or more, you know, I'm, I'm in this dude's team. Uh, you know, it was, it just one of those things where you're like, wow. I mean, you know, full circle. Right. So what I appreciated the most about, and that, that Corman's name was Jeff Eric and I never saw him again. I I've, you know, see him on social media and stuff like that. And he got out a long time ago, but the thing I appreciated the most about it and honestly what hooked me into that community was he just said, it's, it's the best group of dudes you'll ever meet and everybody's doing it because they want to be here. And that's, that's what drew me in. You know, it was, for me, it was never about people know what you do or any of that kind of stuff. I just wanted to work with a bunch of amazing people. And, you know, I did that for 20 plus years in that community between the reconnaissance community and MARSOC and you just, you're going to be hard pressed to find better people. Yeah, I believe. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. No, I believe that, you know, what you, you say, obviously we, we didn't experience, you know, what you did and the units you served in, but I was going to ask, you know, like, you know, in the infantry anyway, you, you know, you have guys that just do not want to be there. They didn't want to be there from day one. They served their four years. Maybe were were you know a decent marine and did their job, but they just never loved it, you know. And I can imagine in those tighter knit groups, you probably have very little of that. I mean, did you did you did you have, you know, guys that were just like screw this and that, but they just stuck it out anyway, or did they usually change their situation and get out or move or you know. So it's interesting, and that's a great question, because there were, in my opinion, there were guys that were strong enough to do it and talented enough to do it, but were doing it for, you You would occasionally run across guys that were doing it. Now, and I say guys, and, and we now have, have women doing it, but in my time, it was guys, right? So I just will preface with that. But you have guys that were doing it for the wrong reason. They were doing it because they wanted to tell people what they were doing in the bar. You know, they, they were doing it because it was cool and sexy or whatever. So to me, it wasn't the the guys that didn't want to be there as much as it was the guys that did it 
because of the wrong reasons. Right. And those were the ones that they would usually find their way out pretty quickly. Um, and then later, and this is an interesting side note, I guess, when I was, after I was a command master chief, and I think I was at the division and I was with the, my sergeant major, like my battle buddy, right? And we were at the, uh, at the cleaners dropping off our stuff. And, you know, like most sergeant majors do, he strikes up a conversation with the young sergeant who's in front of us. And the sergeant told him, yeah, I want to, you know, I'm going to try out for MARSOC and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, oh, interesting you say that. You should talk to, you know, Command Master Chief here. He just came from there. So I was talking to this young man and, and he was immediately started to tell me about how fast he could run, how strong he was, you know, all the things that he thought is what is needed in that to get him through. And I let him go. And then I, I said to him, hey, listen, bud, that's awesome, right? But you're going to be around a bunch of other people that can do all that stuff too. And realize that what makes a good team member is that you're not doing it because it's a competitive thing or it's, you're the strongest, or you're the fastest, or you're the smartest. As you go through whatever selection you're going to go through, it's all about the other people right? You, you might be a stronger swimmer than somebody else. So then grab that person and help them learn to swim fit better and faster on the weekend so they can get through, you know, it's all about teamwork because when the rubber meets the road and, and things go south, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the people that are there 100% of the time. And, and you know, you can count on them because you're, you're able to show your weakness to them so that they can help you. And, and you know, where each other are weak and strong. And I also told him, you know, I've, there's, there's, there's a lot of that built into that process, especially now as MARSOC has grown and all that, it's not just, hey, can you pass the NDOC, right? Can you pass selection? It's how well do you work within the team, which I think is an amazing addition to the selection process, because then you're going to get people in there that, that really are team players. And I, I hope, and I, I think at least in that moment, it kind of opened his eyes. He was like, wow. You know, I've, I've got to be dynamic. I've got to be able to help other people, not just be the fastest one at everything. So it was, it was kind of cool having that conversation with him, you know, and I kind of wonder what happened to that guy. That was many years ago. He, hopefully he's over there at Marsoc now, who knows? Yeah, I got a couple of questions. Um, on that note, uh, I think within like the past two years, uh, there's been some articles released about how artificial intelligence is going to be used to basically vet operators today to go into these uh, programs. I was curious, ha have you run into that or heard any type of like rumors or just talk about that? I, I feel like I've heard some grumblings. You know, I, I got out of the community in, what was it, maybe... 15, 15 or 16, because I, I, I did one last deployment and then I was the command master chief at MARSOC. And then I, I went on to the division in the MEF. So I really, one of my goals was always to be, once I left the community, not to, to be the guy who's like still opining and still, you know, trying to, to drop his two cents uh, because it was difficult when I was there if things were, were you know, bubbling to the surface and somebody would ask somebody out who'd been away from the community, their opinion, and they would unknowingly and not maliciously, but derail everything we were trying to do. 
mm. right? Because they're out of it. So to answer your question, Jose, I, I've heard things about it, but I, I mean, I don't know, you know, and, and I can give you my opinion on whether or not I think that's a good idea, right? Which is probably more of what you're asking. I don't because I'm all about people, man. That's, that's my whole, that's always been my jam is, is people, right? Relationship building and just building a family, right? Wherever you are, every team I've been in, every platoon, you know, every, even when I was at the command level, you build these families and that's, that's the power of people. That's the power of relationships. So I think bringing AI into that is the worst thing you could possibly do, especially if you're looking at soft, you're not talking, you know, I, I think in a resume selection, I just learned, you know, I went through the Honor Foundation before I got out and, and they talked a lot about resumes and I didn't realize there was some kind of AI that scans a resume for certain words to even see if, you know, you're a, a viable candidate, right? That makes sense if you have thousands upon thousands of resumes for one job. Got it. But when it comes to something like selection for soft or any, anything like that, I don't, I don't think it's necessary, right? You need people looking other people in the eyes and saying, okay, why do you want to be here? You know, what's driving right. you to do this? So to answer maybe the question you hadn't asked yet, I think it's a horrible <laughs> idea. If they are looking at it, get back to the, the people and let the people do it. You know, there's a lot of peer selection that goes on in, in the soft community and you can be peered out. So if you're not pulling your weight, you know, your, your team, your crew can say, Hey, Jody's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's being a jerk. He's not being a team player, whatever, you know, he's got no integrity and then boom, you're out. Um, and so as a coach, I use kind of a similar thing. I use three sixties, right. When I'm working with a client and I do verbal three sixties, and I'm trying to capture data from, from people, you know, above the person I'm working with, with their peers and with, you know, whoever's in their team. And it's amazing what people will tell you because I use a very open format. I always start by just saying, hey, you know, tell me about Jose. And then I leave it at that. And, you know, people will get going, right? Yeah, Especially that's if they've got yeah. something to say. Yeah, that's, yeah. You have good old fashioned, uh, yeah. Um. Have you have you ever seen Moneyball, the movie Moneyball? No, I've heard a lot about it, but I haven't seen it. So the guy, I can't remember his name, but Moneyball. Um, so the guy creates this like statistical system where he's able to get all these metrics from all these baseball players, and it basically uh, he computes how these particular players are going to benefit the team, and they're most likely able to succeed and able to go into the championship. And it and reminds me of a similar thing. Uh, but also, too, something that me and Polly talk about all the time is that because some of my studies go into cyclical research, um, there's a genius professor at Stanford University who talks about uh, a brain uh, region uh, called the cotton and patamen. And they just, they've done studies on military personnel, uh, people, uh, scientists, and within this brain region, there's a lot of high dense fibers. And he calls it anomalous cognition, where people are able to get a piece of information from a future space time and then utilize that and make rapid decisions. Um, while that might not be the case for everybody, there is a sense of you know, higher executive decision-making processes. And I think that intuition 
Um, we might not know the entire mechanics of it. I think humans have a better intuition than predictive algorithms like AI. And there's no way that you could sell that um, to anybody, at least within those particular communities saying that, look, my gut is telling me this guy is good to go. I don't care what your machine is telling me. And right now, that's what they're trying to figure out, at least within that world, is how predictive algorithms can have these particular outcomes that humans have. And, you know, it's like a ghost in a shell, right? What's, what's that ghost look like and what's in that ghost? So I'm there with you 100%. And there's something about the human heart and human will um, within those specific parameters that really does something that technology can't. So I'm there with you. Yeah, and to what end? Again, you're recruiting a very small pool of people. It's, it, it makes no sense to do anything like that. You know, that machine is not going to see that Jose, you know, held back and, and grabbed some weight out of my ruck to help me complete that run. Or it's not, it's not going to judge, you know, the merit of a person or their heart or their will or why they're doing it which is a lot of, and you know, I've said this before that I didn't know what I was getting into. I just knew I wanted to be a part of something different. I knew I wanted to be around people that worked hard to get where they were, right? So when I first started, I would say that you are in it because you, you just want to see if you can do it. And that's a natural thing, especially if you're a young person and you know, you're strong and all that kind of stuff. You, you're not mature enough to know this is about the team, right? But very quickly, when I went through BRC, it was ARS back then, I learned very quickly that it was about the team. And I'd even, of course, in field med and, and boot camp and all that kind of stuff, seen some of that. But in ARS, it was really like a flashy neon light to me that this has nothing to do with, with me personally. It's how I in, integrate in the team and make us all stronger. So very quickly, you realize, and I think you shift from wanting to be a strong link to wanting or, or not wanting to be the weakest link, and then realizing what link you are in the chain and how you make the whole chain stronger, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And no machine is ever going to be able to tell you that. Inshallah, man. <laughs> I hope you yeah, integrate that kind of shit. And that's kind of like, you know, if people are, are into like professional sports, you know, you can, you can kind of see that, you know, a team will go out in an off season and blow their whole cap on selecting the top players from every, you know, every team or, or whatnot, thinking you're going to have, you know, a, a pro bowl team or something like that. And then the next season they're, they're terrible because they can't mesh. There's no chemistry. They all think, you know, they're the number one guy and it just falls apart. So, I mean, when you're at that level and you have such high caliber dudes having the, that type of mentality, like it's, you know, and I can, I feel like for you not knowing you, you know, it, it, it was probably a little easier for you because you obviously join in going in, you know, to be a caregiver almost, you know, I know you said you want to be a SEAL, but you quickly switched over to your dad was a corpsman and that's almost in you. So to me, that probably wasn't as hard of an, as, as more, as difficult of an adjustment for you. Cause you already cared about people enough to want to take care of them, you know? Um, so, but I just think people that can't get that, uh, you know, that number one, that number one, you know, little ribbon they get off of their, their mind, they probably be, 
you know, less, uh, less of a contributor to a team. And it probably takes longer for some dudes to break that. You know, we all, we all know him. We all know that guy that thinks he's the best no matter what. And then you throw him into a situation and you're just like, Oh shit, who's the best now? Not you. You just fucked us. Right. Well, and it's interesting if you think about it, we have been trained from a very young age to be individually the best in school. You get individual grades, you know, in sports, most sports, even team sports, you're still selected on an individual basis. So if, if you don't play sports, you really have no training in the sense of what it looks like to be a team member, because in school, you're graded on how smart you are, not, not the class project, not anything else. It's all about you. What do you do? Even getting, you know, my daughter's looking at colleges and stuff and they're starting to, from what I've been told, they're starting to get away from the, the tests as, as much. They're, they're still doing them, of course, but they're looking more holistically at the, at the candidate for the college, which is great, right? Because again, that's an individual grade as opposed to what are you doing for your community? How do you interact with others? You know, that, that holistic kind of person uh, approach. And I think that's amazing, right? And in any kind of small knit team, you have got to very quickly break that down. Otherwise, I mean, how many great bands have broken up because they all thought they were, they were the best, right? That, you know, the, the singer had to go and do a solo or the drummer had to do something else or, you know, and it's, it's with a lot of the teams. I don't know if you've ever read the book Legacy. It's about the New Zealand All Blacks. It's a, a, a rugby team. And I don't even, I couldn't tell you the first thing about rugby, right? But it's a great book about being a team member and what it means to be a team member and what it means to contribute to a team. And one of my favorite chapters in there is called No Dickheads, right? And it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. Hey, welcome to this team. Don't be a jerk. You know, welcome to this team. Appreciate everybody. And I always tried to build an environment where, you know, I hate hearing the Pogues this, uh, you know, the, the, the operators or the shooters or the, you know, the grunts or whatever. It doesn't matter what community you're in. It's, it's, I, I call it the whole, the whole spear approach, right? So everybody wants to talk about the tip of the spear. Well, if you were to think about the tip of the spear, it's not lethal by itself. So sure, that might be the operational end, but really, and it's very small, right? So if I were to give you the tip of the spear and say, go kill that person, you might be able to do it but not as effectively as if it's attached to a staff, a long staff. And every person in an organization has got a hand on that staff, thrusting it forward to give it power, right? So as a leader, your job is to make sure that the people at the pointy end of the spear really appreciate all the hands that are grasping that, that staff and driving it forward. So the people that are, that are working your pay are just as cool and just as awesome as the people that are downrange doing stuff. Because the reality is the people that are actually downrange doing the business are, I don't know what the percentage is, but I guarantee you it's single digits, probably low single digits in relation to the whole military construct. So why would you then be a jerk to the person handling your pay, right? It, I mean, they're handling your pay or 
the person fixing the truck that's going to drive you where you got to go or the person kicking pallets out of the back of a plane that's going to sustain you for 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 whatever it is that you're doing when i was at that command master chief level my goal was always to make everybody appreciate everybody for what they brought to the fight and i feel that i was able to do that in many cases you know when you would go in and you would see the pay people and you're like, Hey, what's going on? And, and they just got a big smile and they're like, I got to go to the range today. Right. Because they had helped one of the operators out, you know, maybe gone a, a step above, like found a way to yes, instead of just jumping up and down on the big no button. And so then the operator appreciated what they did and said, Hey, we're going to the range. Do you want to come shoot today? And that's something that that person would never get to do. But then when they get out there, they're like, wow, there's a lot to this. So now they gain an appreciation, right? And when everybody starts doing that, everybody appreciates everyone else for what they bring. And then when the people that are wrenching the trucks really feel appreciated, they're gonna go that step, step beyond. And, and now they're a part of the family. So that was always my goal, right? And, and I always felt like I had a good culture in an organization when people were having to be drug away to go to their next duty station. And the first thing they did when they got there was like, how can I get back? You know, and, and not in a bad way, because I would always tell people, hey, be the, be the drop that starts the ripple, right? If, if you get to a new unit and it's sour, then be the good drop. Try to, try to turn it around. Try to help people. Try to get people to know each other. You know, good spirited. When I was at the division, I love to go and see the units playing whatever, whatever sport, ultimate Frisbee, basketball, whatever, because then they're talking trash. And when they're talking trash, they're getting to know each other, right? And that's what develops that, that cohesiveness and that sense of family. And when you've got that sense of family, when things go south and it gets real, you're not gonna let that other person down, regardless of what that looks like, whether it's, hey, you've got a pay problem or, hey, we're in a massive gunfight right now. It's that same sense of, I'm not going to let you down. I've got your back. Yeah, that's a lot of good shit there that you just brought up. I mean, I feel, you know, and, it, it, and it's hard. I, I feel like the disconnect, you know, with our community is that you just feel like a lot of other people haven't experienced what you've experienced. And you, and you can't, I know that's kind of irrational to think that way because you know, I have no idea what you've been through. You have no idea what I've been through. And I could tell you that, but unless you were there beside me, you wouldn't know, like you wouldn't know how those situations felt or, and even if you were there, you wouldn't know how I was feeling in those situations. Even if you were right next to me. Yeah. We can sense that. And like you say, those family building, you know, uh, practices that, do connect you better with your guys you still don't know down to the to the minor detail how someone processes something and i think that's where the big disconnect comes in our community is that all of these jobs which i agree 100 percent are are they are they are the the engine driving the truck right all these people making sure we're paid so when we get home from deployment we have fucking money to go do what we want with and you know, the guys getting us around and supplying us to make sure we have what we need. Like we automatically as a, as the, you know, fighting community 
just feel like these people can't possibly know what it's like. And that's a wrong way to look at it. Um, you know, I, of course we joke and it's, I feel the same way you do. You know, I love everyone that was willing to do something and actually did it because it's not just talk at that point. And, you know, it's, it, it's all from, from me when I, when I make jokes like that, I know they, they can be damaging, but it's all love. You know, I appreciate every person that was willing to contribute to the mission, no matter what your role was or how insignificant that you might think it was. Cause, cause we don't, we know that I have a buddy actually was, I ran into him when we were coming back from Ramadi on camp Ramadi. I didn't even know he joined the, the Marine Corps, but I f- ran into him at supply. I think I was trying to get new boots or some shit from them. And uh, I was like, Holy shit. And he ended up having, he was a supply dude, musician from high school. I was kind of buddies with him. And uh, he had tattooed on his arm, something like bullets don't fly without supply. He had this tattooed on his body. And I was like laughing about it. <laughs> Like giving him shit, giving him a hard time. Like he had literally had that tattoo and I was talking shit, whatever. And I was like, you know, that's just good shit though. Cause he's proud of what he does, you know? And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you, you gotta have those people in, in every role and you gotta have good ones in every role or it just doesn't work. Absolutely. And I always remind myself, there's no way I would want to be doing that job but there's someone who does and they do it well. Yeah. So they might not choose to, to do what we do. Right. Or, you know, all of us individually, but I wouldn't want to do what they do either. So I appreciate them even more for stepping up and saying, sure, I'll bury myself in numbers and reports and things that just would blow my mind. Right. I want to be outside dragging my knuckles across the ground you know, and that's not appealing to them. They don't want to sleep in ditches and do all the stuff that we do, but I don't want to do what they do either. So even more so. And and I also feel that the military, especially if it's done in love and everybody does feel like they're a part of the family. And that's when I was saying talking trash is great because it means you're talking and then you're getting to know each other. Cause we always talk about pushing buttons, right? Oh, I know, I know how to push your buttons. I feel that at least my, my generation, I don't want to sound like some salty old guy, but you know, nothing was sacred, nothing. It didn't matter. Nothing. Unless somebody said, you know, you crack a mom joke and somebody said, Hey, nope, like don't crack mom jokes with me. Then everybody knew like, okay, that guy, you know, no mom jokes for him, but everything else was fair game. So people had their certain things that were near and dear to them. That you're like, all right, I know that I can't do that because, you know, maybe his mom was killed or whatever, right? But other than that, nothing, nothing was off limits. Yeah. And, yeah. right. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that's what brought us closer because you're getting to know people and, and they know when you crack that joke or, or whatever that you really mean it from love. And I mean, how many, I, you know, I was in California for a long time no matter where you go, you can see a group of military people minus their haircuts, but you can see them from a mile away because, you know, you've got somebody in, in full-blown cowboy attire, somebody walking around in baggy stuff, a skate punk, and, a, a, you know, a, a young lady with, I don't know, I would say pink hair, but obviously you can't do that in the military, but you get my point. Like you get this amalgamation of people that would never talk to each other 
outside of the military and they're walking down the streets like they're best friends because they are best friends. Yeah. And I guarantee you, they're all making fun of each other for what they're <laughs> wearing or where they came from or how they talk or, but that's what brings us closer. And I feel that if we could have more of that in our society where people accept each other and just say, hey, I got it. You don't agree with what I think. That's cool. Like, let's have a conversation or let's agree not to talk about it, right? Because then we both get spun up. But we've got such this crazy cancel culture that it's, in my point, I guess, with, with that stuff in the military, especially community to community, right? The admin community to the grunts, as long as it was done in, in, in love, then it's cool because it's no different than cracking jokes about where somebody came from. But when it wasn't done with love and there was no appreciation, that's where I would pull somebody aside and say, hey, do you want to go work there for a day? There's no way, right? Okay, well then why do you not appreciate her? Do you really understand what that person does? And when you can build those bridges, then you're off to the races, I think, with a great organization. Yeah. Yeah. I was a... I was a part of that crew, you know, that early elitist type mentality. And it wasn't until a few years after I got out where I started experiencing, you know, my struggles, you know, I was 23, moving into 24, walking with a cane because I had, you know, just wear and tear. I was like, fuck this, man. And so I I swallowed some hard pills, but then, you know, started getting into mental health and stuff like that. I began to see everything through kind of like a behavioral health lens. So you know, peer support is really all about listening and taking a step back to have that meta perspective about where people are coming from and what they're trying to articulate to you. And I never did that. I never did that. I kind of had like this chip on my shoulder that is like, you know, you were trained as the best, right? And, you know, (laughs) 0311s, you know, are trained to a standard, right? Compared to other world armies and whatnot but that was just the mentality that i have and until i saw those hard pills man and started realizing that it wasn't like that and seeing how people's positions in the world after just being bombarded by your piece of shit you're not good at anything yada 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 i can see how that cancel culture kind of uh, propagated to what it is today which is this beast that is non-stop and there's another point there too is like we don't really talk about how there are legitimate actors out there that are seeking to divide using culturally sensitive things like that. Uh, And we only hear the particular narratives from particular groups that want to sway the overarching narrative. We don't get to hear, you know, what 0.01% of the population is doing in order to stay on top of things and succeed to be, you know, this military superior group of individuals, right? We're just hearing the negative side of things. And I also feel too that, you know, at some individual level, we have to have like a philosophy that sustains us throughout that. So I'm curious, like you, was it 90, you said 92 or 98 that you went in? 92, yeah. Okay. What was, what was like the, 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 the mission back then for you or like for like any unit you know i'm curious to hear just what that frame of thought was back then those were my younger years too so you know when you're when you're younger 
you don't see the big picture, right? It wasn't really, it wasn't until much, much later in my career that I kind of see, started to see behind the curtain. And I fully realized I still haven't seen all the way behind the curtain. There's stuff that happens and people get all up in arms. And I know because of the peak that I've had behind the curtain that there's probably several other layers that nobody's talking about or whatever. And, and so I always try to remind myself that. The mission though, back then, honestly, was just training. Up until the war started, it was training, training, training. And there were always these little moments where we would hear, okay, North Korea's going, or okay, it's it's this or it's that or or whatever. But I remember we trained, especially in at the time it was still recon, and we trained for everything. We trained cold weather, we trained, you know, in in uh, the desert, we trained BBSS, we trained GoPlats, we trained everything. And then when the war started, then obviously the training got very, very focused, right? But to answer your question, Jose, I I couldn't give you a good answer because I was young, I was in teams, I was just doing my 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 thing. And all I knew is that we were just training over and over and over. Um, I picked up Chief right before my first combat deployment. I was an instructor at field med and then picked up chief and then went over to first force and then deployed to Iraq with that guy that I was talking about earlier. So even at that level, I mean, that's, you know, gunny for you all. Um, you see, you know, what's going on within your world, but you don't know the, the greater strategy of stuff. Right. And yeah, so I don't, I don't know if that answers your question or, or, or not, but I don't, I couldn't give you an answer. Other than no, 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 it does. Yeah, I'm just, no, I'm just curious to hear the mindsets, you know, um, it was totally different, like, uh, well, at least, you know, I don't want to speak for Polly, but, you know, moving into 2006 with like, uh, Iraq kind of somewhat ending, and then we're transitioning into Afghanistan, it's like, oh, I mean, there's like, not that the war wasn't real, I mean, it was all real to us, um, and it just seemed to have gotten a lot more stricter and more, technically like being technically focused so it's like you were limited on kind of how to expand not just like a, a sense of creativity but a sense of like othership with other guys and part of it too was like we did Iraq which was very non-kinetic moved into Afghanistan which was very very kinetic and then I stayed with the unit and deployed again in 2011. That was a very kinetic um, combat tour as well. Uh, but it was just a different vibe. Like I didn't have a personal philosophy. I was solely bent on, I just want to get mine in, you know, fuck these guys. That's it. Not, not my, my, my teams, but, you know, the Taliban speaking. And then, you know, and then when we got back in 2011, it's like the Marine Corps changed overnight. It was like, what is this? Like what, you know, what happened? And I'm probably, I'm sorry if I, if I confused you, but there was just a series of atmospheres that had shifted. And I try to paint in my brain just different periods throughout the military of what it was like with those frames of thoughts. What were people thinking? How did they feel? What was their personal mission in those particular times? Um, it's very unique to me to hear early OIF stories where guys stood where we wanted to be and hear what they went through in terms of just what they were processing. And 
sometimes you don't get to. I didn't start processing that stuff until I got out. And I really, you know, went into a deep dive about what this really was all about. And, you know, in the end, really what it was all about was this idea of brotherhood, right? That's what really mattered at the heart of all things. Why I did everything, even though it was sometimes chaotic or very, very um, raw, so to say. Yeah, so definitely agree with all of that. And I guess what I, yeah, I was talking about, I don't know what the strategic, you know, perspective was back then, obviously, but it was just all about training. It was all about us training together, tight-knit teams. We were doing Muse and all that stuff. So if you had, if you got a deployment, you were kind of lucky, right? Because there was not a lot of stuff going on back then. And it was building that, that fraternal love for each other. And, and just making ourselves better for whenever. And that's what I would tell, you know, young folks now when I was out running around when I was still in, your time is gonna come. So you have to be ready. You have to build those bonds with each other. And you have to, you have to know that you have each other's back, right? And that's all about, about loving each other, to be honest. It's all about that. And if you love each other and you're there for each other, then when it goes south, or gets real, then you know that person's going to be there. And you never know how you're going to react when, when it's real. And I'm sure you all experience that. You know, there are definitely times either, well, personally, we're like, okay, well, that just happened. And, and of course, you replay it in your mind. And you're like, I could have done this better. I could have done that better. But, you know, I wasn't cowering in a corner. Like, I, I, I was there and I, I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I just, I want to be better at that, right? So critiquing. But and I'm sure you witnessed it as well, even in my community, I saw guys that, you know, not very often, like once or twice that I can think of. I saw guys that pre-war, everybody thought was, you know, a, a, a giant, right? And then when it got real, they weren't as courageous as maybe we all thought they would be. And that's not anything bad on them either, because you, you said it earlier, somebody did, you don't know what a person is dealing with day to day. You don't know what's going on in their, in their mind. And you, you can't know how you're going to react until, until it gets real. So um, yeah, I guess to answer your question, it was all about training and building that fraternity. I would, I would like to, for you to expound if you can on what you meant when you said the atmosphere changed between yes. six and 11. Yeah, no, no. So it was like, um, well, for one, uh, in 2006, um, I kind of began to take out my own patrols, but it was, like I said, it was not as kinetic. It started getting kinetic as we were ripping out with uh, 1-9. 2009, I was put into uh, a team leader billet. Um, I was also the radio operator, and I was, you know, the T-Chiplicy Marine in the back, so I was all about Kazavak. Um, and like I said, you know, that was a kinetic you know it was a kinetic atmosphere and there's a lot of politics that played into that as well um and then in 2011 the political spectrum internal politics um mainly careerism this is something that i talk about frequently um was undermining this kind of uh, cohesiveness right this dimension of cohesiveness and um and so this very real world right idea of combat really began to set in and it was like, all right, well, these 
people don't want to assume the responsibility and accountability and want to live in this kind of like careeristic mindset, well, then it's up to us to take care of our own. It's up to us to do the operations and carry out the mission. And going through that in 2011, assuming a higher uh, billet and then eventually stepping into a squad leader role, um, everything became about taking care of your younger guys. And sometimes it wasn't like the best decisions. Like I remember sitting sitting guys down because I, I didn't think that they could cut it, right? There was just a decision that I made and I stuck with it. And so the atmosphere, which was already somewhat political in terms of careers and people didn't want to lose their careers, didn't want to go to Leavenworth, be tried for something that they did on the ground, um, had shifted into this kind of peacetime Marine Corps, which for us, you know, we got back in August 8th and then we hit Lejeune, I was on Lejeune and it was just like, there was no war going on. It was like, it was gone, it was obsolete. And so the atmosphere had shifted into this kind of like, um, I, I really, it just shifted. It, it was just never the same. And it was like then that I knew myself. I was like, well, it's time to get out. It's like, I can't participate in this if it's going to be like this. And, you know, there was little silly little things that added on to that, like getting chewed out for not having linen on my bed. You know, even though that we had been back maybe about two weeks and that's not, you know, I didn't know where I could get linen. That was a police sergeant's duty and, I was like, you had me doing ops, you know, at eight man team ops, you know, and, and I'm getting chewed out because I don't have a linen. This is not a Marine Corps that I want to be part of. So it was like the, the atmospheres had shifted. Um, and, you know, I talk about mental states, my mental state shifted as well. It's like, it became a lot more severe. And I think, I mean, it, cause it's a real thing, right? Watching someone pass away or die being in those combat situations that's a very real thing and it's like i took that all to heart right not that others didn't but i really took that to heart and it's like i don't want to experience that again and i don't want others to experience that again so it's like the the atmosphere for me internally became a lot more severe while the overarching atmosphere became very very political and that's how it kind of remained and for a very long time after I got out in 2011, uh, I really focused on targeting careerism as one of the undermining roots of why military service has become more image-based rather than substance-based. Does that answer? It does. And I would just, I would counter that it's likely you were in a, in a unit or in an organization that was being led poorly. Yeah, totally. I totally. I, and I've, I've recognized this before, you know, um, before, early on, I wanted to, to really target the Marine Corps. I was like, I was like, I fucking Marine Corps. Like I wanted to get back at it. And then I started realizing, I was like, you know what, man, that organization isn't what's causing your problems. And what it was, was poor leadership. That really was the root of all that. And, you know, we have Guys go away on B billets, which is great. You know, you want to, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I don't have a thing with people who make the military career. Talking about the careerism I'm talking about is where you completely undermine any kind of, uh, you just undermine the idea that there are human beings that you have to put in situations. And sometimes if you're afraid to allow them to have some type of autonomy, which could get you in trouble, and you want to restrict them from doing that, which is going to cause a lot more harm down the road, 
then you probably shouldn't be in those positions. Um, and that's something that we faced in Sohala. It got it got really really bad where you know one of the our platoon sergeant platoon commander got relieved of their duty in a combat zone at a patrol base because of the incompetence that was being you know that had taken place and so so like I said you know my my beef wasn't with like people who made the military their career my beef was with how that idea undermined everything that we were about, everything that we were taught. JJ did time buckle, 14 leaderships and principles, taking care of our own, all of that stuff. That, that was my beef with it. And, and that's 100% um, understandable, right? I totally get it. And I would just offer this. My, my struggle or my, the thing that I feel needs to really be addressed is the integrity of leaders. And I'm actually happy to hear that your, the, the person that was incompetent was relieved because what I saw throughout three decades is people would be soft relieved and then just move somewhere else. So all you're doing is pushing that problem off. And then when they would be promoted ultimately because nobody wanted to write bad paper on them or tell the truth, you're perpetuating that poor leadership, right? So you messed up, I push you over here to this other unit and write maybe not a glowing report, but one that says you should still be promoted. Boom, you get promoted. Now you're climbing the ladder. And I think that's how we end up with people in positions that are probably exactly what you're talking about, Jose, is these people are, are incompetent, they're only concerned with themselves, right? And they, they don't know what it means to be a leader as opposed to all of the amazing leaders at all levels that I've worked with that are in it to win it because they love their people. And they have the integrity and the fortitude to look somebody else in the eye and say, hey, I'm sorry, you're not cutting it, right? I need you to be better here or you shouldn't have done that. And it's, it's not a... Um, it's not a thing for their career necessarily. And it's the hardest thing in the world to do. I share a story often when I was 19 years old, 18, whatever I was, I was at that hospital I was talking about and I was the senior corpsman on the ward, right? And we had this, we had a great ward. We really did. We had a great team. And we had this, this young man who had come up from the post office and was working on our ward. He was a corpsman. They had him working in the post office and he was the nicest guy in the world, right? But he was, he didn't, he, what it really boiled down to is he didn't have the aptitude for medicine and he was dangerous. And so everybody on that ward worked with him, the nurses, the corpsmen, everybody. We could not get him to a state. And this is, you know, probably a couple of months, right? Where we felt that he was safe enough to work in the ward by himself or, you know, on a, in, with a patient by himself. So I did what every 19 year old kid would do. I called my dad, right? And I'm like, hey pop, I don't know what to do. And he said, bud, it's hard to look somebody else in the eye and tell them that they're not cut out for this or to hold them accountable for And it's not that the, the young man was doing anything wrong. Now in retrospect, I kind of wonder if he you know, wasn't on the spectrum or, or something like that, right? Because it just, there was something that wouldn't click but he was amazing in the post office. And he had that kind of like smile. Everybody loved him. Like I say, he was a great guy. He was awesome down there. So he told me exactly what I'm telling you all in the sense of, 
you've got to have the integrity and the fortitude to look somebody in the eye and say, this isn't working out, right? And he said, what's going to happen if you pass that guy out? And I said, well, there's, there's the chance that he could kill somebody, you know, or, or do something really bad to a patient, right? And not maliciously, but just because he made a mistake. And, and my dad said, he's like, bud, that's on you then. At that point, that's on you. And so at, you know, 18 or 19, whatever I was, that's a tough thing to do. And I, I went in and I talked to the division officer, the, the head nurse of that ward, and, and we kind of developed a plan and we brought this young man in. And basically, you know, we had a ton of documentation, all the stuff we had to be doing that we were going to pull his credentials as a corpsman. And what we worked out was being able to re-rate him as a postal clerk, right? But I mean, she was crying, he was crying. I was like, oh my gosh, this sucks, <laughs> right? Because that's a tough thing to do. But if you think about what happened or what could have happened if we just passed that problem off, I mean, that could have been horrible for somebody down, down the way. Um, and I, I would see him every day when I would come into, into the hospital, in the, in the post office, happy as a clam, doing an amazing job. So after that tough uh, discussion and every, you know, all the dust settled, he was in the place that he absolutely should have been in the first place because he was awesome down there. So for me, that was a very valuable lesson to learn at 18 or 19 years old. And I always tried to carry that forward and have the fortitude and the integrity to hold people accountable. And people appreciate that, right? People appreciate being told, hey, you're amazing at this. I need you to step up your game here. And when we don't do that, sometimes people don't know they're not doing the right thing. Sometimes they think they're crushing it as a leader and everybody around them knows the truth, but nobody is stepping up, especially their leadership is not stepping up and saying, hey, you really suck, right? You either need to step up your game or we're going to have to pull you. In the combat environment, it's, it's obviously the stakes are much higher, so it seems to happen a little bit quicker. But in, in, the, in the, you know, the, the no war environment, we'd see, see people get promoted all the time, all the time. And that to me is what perpetuates the kind of leadership that you're talking about, the poor leadership. So to me, it's an accountability issue. It's a fortitude issue. It's, a, it's an integrity issue of the people that are, are ahead of them already. Yeah, for sure. And why, like, why do you think that is though? Like, I, I feel there, there can be a few, there's a few reasons to explain that one. If you're, if you're a senior leader and you have these issues going on under you, if you start, you know, flagging them and calling them out, how does that make your unit look? You know, you're, it makes you look like you're, you know, leading this motley crew of, of untrained, unintelligent individuals. And it might, you know, it might not be that it might be underlying circumstances like you're talking about where some people just might not be cut out for what they're doing but when you start flagging them does that mean you're a bad leader because now you you have these guys where you're addressing issues and when i say guys i mean you know females too they're i just call everyone guys they're all my yeah. guys but you know when you start flagging these guys for all these problems and then someone above you's like hold on we got an issue going on and then you know guy that's running the show it all falls onto his lap and he's like no wait i'm trying to I'm trying to actually weed this out and clean this up a little bit. That's one. Also too, like you were saying, it's, it's amazing how, and I, you know, I, I feel like 
you know, this, this applies to me as well. Like a lot of times people get so locked in to seeing things the only way that they believe they are. They can't, no matter what someone says to them or, or how they try to show them what's going on. It's, it's right here. Once it's locked in there, you won't like, you won't change. And I think that, you know, that those things together probably are, are to me, the, the leading factors on what causes, you know, you know, a poor, a poor leader or having a poor situation. You just keep letting shit slide. Cause you don't want to say anything. Cause it makes you look bad or you just let it slide because you think it's not the way it actually is. And again, that goes back to courage and integrity. You know, does anybody, does anybody question the coach who pulls a player off the field who's not performing at their best and bench them and put somebody else in? No. No. So why would somebody question the leader who pulls somebody off the field and says, let's, let's sit down and recalibrate you or, you know, hold them accountable for whatever it is. And then the integrity, that courage and integrity goes both ways. It's also on that young leader to, to be letting their boss know that, you know, the leader above them, hey, here's what's going on. You know, this, this person down here is not doing great. I'm working with them. I've got all this, you know, here's the plan of action, right? If it goes well, we're good. If it doesn't, here's what I'm going to do. And, and gain their support. The, the leader in charge of that person should be having those conversations anyway. If you're not talking to everybody in your team, and if you think about it, you know, like, like a hierarchy, if the leader's not talking to, to their team leaders and their team leaders are not talking to their team leaders, everything fails. So the person at the very top of the Christmas tree should know exactly what's going on with everybody on that macro level. They don't need to know how the sausage is being made, but they need to know that Bob down in platoon, whatever, is is kind of on on you know on the cusp of being relieved, or that they need assistance, because as a leader, you you provide people resources and you provide them your ear. And maybe what Bob down there in platoon whatever needs is to go sit with I don't know the battalion commander or whoever, to have that next level mentorship. Maybe you've done everything you can do, and to use my example from earlier. Of course, the corpsman rallied around that guy first, right? We're like, okay, we can do this. And that wasn't working. So then we brought the nurses in and that wasn't working. So then we brought the division officer in. So once we knew we'd exhausted everything we could possibly do, then it was time to take, you know, the worst course of action as far as gut wrenching, but it ultimately ended up being the best thing for the team. And when people are not thinking of the team all the time, and I had this epiphany yesterday, right? you know, my birthday was yesterday and, and my, my, my girls, my wife and my daughter were asking me, what do you want? You know? And I'm like, I don't want anything. I'm going to get another surfboard at some point. Right. So just, that'll be my, my birthday present. Well, my wife's Hispanic and she's like, it's bad luck if you don't have something to open. I'm like, okay, well give me a bottle of whiskey or something, I, whatever. Right. But I was thinking about it, it, it because I always say when you, when you really step into that leadership role, you quit warming up for the opera which is me, 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 me. And you start thinking about the team. That's all that matters is the team. You no longer care about how you look or whatever. It's just the team. And I was thinking about, I don't care about presence anymore, right? I want us, 
I had an amazing day yesterday because I got to serve with my best friend. Then I, I came home and we had cake and then we jumped in the car and we went to our favorite place and had these giant burritos, right? El, El Cerro Tacos up in Jacksonville, if, if you don't know it. They've got real California burritos. But to me, it was that experience of everybody being together, right? That sense of family. And I, I know I'm simplifying it, but that's what leadership is about as well. It's when you finally reach that phase where you really don't care what present you get. It's not about you anymore. It's about the experience. It's about, you know, and I started thinking about, about my parents or my wife's parents, my in-laws, what they really want is spend the money that you would spend to buy us a present on a plane ticket, or, you know, we want to be together, right? It's about the we, not the me. And, and leadership is very much about that. It's all about making sure that your people have what they need. I, I probably went off way off on a tangent there, but, you know, no, that was good. That was good. No. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and, and, you know, just to recap real quick, how do you, I don't think it was right that they put a, someone that was in a B billet for, you know, so the guy did, you know, the invasion and then was in a B billet and then just jumped into Afghanistan operations. And it's like, you expect this guy to really lead. And, you know, back then they didn't teach us the best skill sets to approach leadership, right? That we, you know, we don't, the programs that they have today is, are, are great and wonderful, but they didn't, we didn't have those skill sets back then. You know, it's like, I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know how to talk to leadership. It was just like, it was, just, you know how it is, you know, at, the, at that ground level, I don't know. You, well, I don't know if you know what I'm saying, you know, how it can get right. It's like, you can't really articulate your points of view because you feel you're being wronged in some way. And then to try to express that, it just comes out totally different. And part of it was a character issue and part of it, you know, so it's like, I'll give you, I'll give you a prime example. I would go into the company office because my squad leader was running late, right? It was, well, why is he running late? He's running late because, you know, base is, you know, they're, they've upsized the force. It's a nightmare, a no big deal on first fire team leader. I'll go handle it. I'll go do, you know, the rosters, all that good stuff. And then it was, as soon as they get to the company office, Hey, where's, uh, where's your uh, squad leader at? I was like, what do you mean? It's like, don't you, don't you just dislike whenever your squad leader is late? And it was like little things like that. And it was like, well, it's fine. It's no big deal. I'm the first fire team that I'll take care of business. And he gets on here and then, you know, life goes on. There's no need for any of this, whatever seeds that you're trying to plant. And it was little things like that, that built up to a larger issue. And, you know, when I try to explain that to leadership, um, you know, we're all mission oriented, you know, we're getting ready to go downrange. We ain't got time for that. It's like you patch that up and you move on. Um, but it eventually became a bigger issue when other things began to unfold. And maybe we'll, we'll talk offline about that whole situation. Um, but it was little things like that that allowed um, some of these other issues to, to actualize. I don't know if you've read, there's a book called The Power of Ted. And it's, it's thin, you know, it's like this. And it's, it's kind of cheesy but the concept is good. So there's this triangle they talk about and it's, it's 
really what the whole book is about, the, the concept behind it is shifting from victim mindset to creator mindset. So the victim mindset is going to be, all this is being done to me. The creator mindset is, okay, here's what's going on. How can I make it better? Mm -hmm. And I remember being this way when I was young, right? Especially if you're young on the pointy end of the spear, we all go through that. And I think it, it transcends any community, the admin community, everybody. You're, you feel that everything's being done to you. How can they not see this? You know, it's, it's yeah. very, it is very victim oriented. And then we all get around each other and we start complaining about it. And next thing you know, we whipped ourselves into a frenzy over something that in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter much. And I will tell you, I feel, so I deployed my last time in 2012 and I was the oldest guy on my team by like seven years because, you know, as Sarks, we were super undermanned and, you know, I just jumped back into team as old guy, right? And it was one of the most amazing experiences in my life because the deployment was awesome. The team was great, but I was playing a young man's game as an old guy, right? Wisdom is knowledge without emotion. I had aged enough and matured enough to see the things. And it was so fun for me to be able to watch what you're talking about, things that would happen and, and whip the guys into a frenzy, right? And, you know, you just get that angst and that anger and to see it from an old guy's perspective. And then I think at times it helped because I would, I would say, all right, well, this doesn't matter. You know, in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't matter. Like, let's knock this out and, and then we'll go on and do what we know we have to do. Or how can we make this situation better? So if you've not checked that book out for anything in life, I think it's amazing. And I think it's, again, you know, not to get too uh, broad, but it's where we are in America. Everybody wants to play the victim. Our society is, is all about that instead of playing the creator. And realizing you're not going to get along with everybody. So in your case, Jose, if the leader, and I've worked for some horrendous leaders. I, my grandmother told me once, you'll never be sorry for anything you've ever learned, good or bad. I always try to pick the things, you know, I think of all the bad leaders that you've worked for, and you could probably name a thousand things that you would never do that they did. You probably learn more from the bad leaders than the good ones. Now, that might not help your situation when you're downrange and, you know, things are, are sour, right? And it's, it's not for, I think, for younger minds to, to fully comprehend at times. And I would, certainly wouldn't, when I was a second class, you know, on a Mew, that Mew deployment, my first Mew deployment before the war and all that kind of stuff, I can tell you a thousand stories where I was just a ball of rage over something that I would laugh at now, right? But as you, as you develop that maturity and start thinking about getting yourself out of that victim mindset and think, okay, how can I create something better? How can, we, how can we rally the crew to, if, if we got a bad leader, that's what makes the military great, is even if you've got a bad leader, but a good unit, everybody's going to make things happen. And we all know that. And as young people who haven't seen behind the curtain, you realize that you're making it happen, right? And I will tell you, having seen behind the curtain, there are leaders that realize it's, it's the young people down there that are making that happen. And then hopefully holding the, that leader accountable, even if it's in a quiet way where 
they're going to make sure that, you know, things are written that they're not going to get promoted even further, right? If it's nothing egregious that they had to be fired over. You can walk into an organization, and I've walked into a thousand units at this point, you can walk in and smell good culture versus bad culture. You feel it. You know when the leadership is firing on all cylinders and everybody's happy. And think about what we do in the military, right? It's, it, it's usually, it's not sexy. It's not fun. It's, you know, uh, it's not always awesome work, but how many times have you been scrubbing toilets and joking and having fun and laughing? It's because you're, you're together. And, and those are the things that you remember. That's why we continue to deploy. There's a ton of really bad stuff that happens on deployment, but you get that deployment amnesia, right? You come home a month later, you don't remember all the bad stuff. All you remember is all the jokes and the fun times and, and hanging out with your friends. And next thing you know, you're raising your hand, I'll go again, <laughs> right? And also because you don't wanna, you don't wanna be, this is the one thing I did struggle with to some degree when I stepped out and got into that command role was not being the person who was gonna go downrange anymore. And luckily enough for me, the war kind of started to taper at that point, but we still had a lot of people doing a lot of dangerous stuff. And you have to come to terms with, okay, it's just not my place anymore. Now my place is to make sure they have everything they need and that we can take care of it as much as we can back here to help them out, right? And, and also to build that team back here so that everybody who's got a hand on that staff is feeling important, know that they're making a contribution to make the tip of the spear as lethal as we possibly can. That's good shit, man. So where do you, I mean, <clears throat> you have any input or I want to talk about where you think we're going in the future. I mean, I know the, the, uh, their, the plan is to downscale and kind of specialize a lot of the, the ground forces. So we're not just this big brute anymore. Um, how do you see that, you know, playing out? Of course, not everybody's going to be an SF unit, but, um, yeah, you got any input there. I feel that people are our number one asset. They're the greatest thing that we have. They are the thing that make us better than all of the other, you know, large scale militaries because the way we train, the way we build our people, we build into them a bias for action. So, you know, Jose, you as a, as a I mean, you just kind of said it, right? Your, your squad leader or whatever was not there. So you just stepped up and, and, and took charge. That's what our people do. They know what the commander's intent is. And when they're out there at the, at the pointy end getting the business done and they're faced with an obstacle, they don't freeze and turn around and radio back to hire to figure out what to do, which is what other militaries do. That paralyzes them. Our people say, okay, I know that we had to take that hill. This just popped up. I'm going to make this decision and we're going to go with it. And things might not go as well as we hope, but then we're going to deal with that as well because we empower our people. And I will tell you, especially as an old guy, you know, three decades doing all this stuff, every generation had to go to school uphill in the snow, barefoot. Every generation had it worse than the, the generation before them. Yeah. Every generation was stronger than the people coming in behind them. But 
the reality is, you know, that we, that's not the case. All the people that are joining the military are good young people that want to do good things. And, you know, they're, they're, I was reminded of that as we would go around and travel to all these units. And I would see all these amazing young Americans sitting on top of their tank, like super proud of what they do, you know, or whatever it was they do. And I, I had not experienced a lot of that stuff on that side of the house. So I was like a kid in the candy store. I'm like, bro, this tank is awesome. Right. And then the, and then the, the young person sitting on top of us like, well, let me show it to you. And so you've got, we tend to focus, especially when in that leadership stuff, because every morning you get a brief on all the bad stuff that's going on. Yeah. We look at it statistically and my last, well, all of, you know, I've had amazing, I worked for eight generals and they were all amazing. Right. And I think almost to a person and they all didn't necessarily say it, but we looked at the statistics and maybe one to 2% of the entire force. And when I left the MEF, we had 45,000 people. I mean, that's a town. One to 2% of the people were actually out getting in trouble or doing something bad. Think about that. That means 98% of the people are at least doing what we're asking them to do. And 50% of that are probably crushing it, right? Another 20% are like trailing those people and trying to be better and better and better. And then you got 20 to 30% that probably just come in and, you know, punch the clock and do what they got to do. That was a cool thing, I think, as being the old guy and seeing that, that you don't always see as a young person because, you know, you're, you're faced with, and I, I say a lot, I talk to a lot of, of my clients in corporate America about getting off the dance floor and getting into the balcony. So as a young person, you know, you're, you're dancing with one person and that's all you see. So whatever the problem that you're being faced with is right in front of you. But as you get older and, and you get into leadership stuff, you're able to get up in the balcony and see the whole picture. So when you, when you pull back and you look at it in a more macro perspective, especially when you get a chance to actually walk around and talk to all these people, it's, it's, it's amazing. You're like, wow, you're awesome. And you're awesome. And oh my gosh, you're doing incredible stuff. And so you see that's how this thing keeps going. So to, I think, bring it back to what you were talking about earlier in that smaller scale, what makes us strong as a military is that bias for action. We're going to continue to, to recruit great young Americans and build them into the best people that we can. And if our leaders have integrity and courage and the stuff to then push out the people that are maybe not cutting the mustard, which is fine, that happens. Then the people that we do have in these smaller units working on whatever it is that they're working on are just, they're going to continue to crush it. I don't know if I got way off track there or not, but. No, you didn't. No, you, you hit it. You hit it right on. I mean, it's just, you know, it, everything is just, it's just our, you know, opinions and, and insight on what we think is going to happen. We don't know what the next challenges we're going to, you know, our country's going to be facing are, I mean, so. I, I do think I, to me, it's kind of like, damn, you know, why are we, why are we scaling back? And I get it. There's no real, um, not a ton of direct action from, from, you know, your ground pounders. But I, I think I like that, that idea of, of keying in on the guys that want to be there and want to do good things and then advancing them, you know, even at your, your entry level roles, there's no reason you can't specialize training for these guys and, and, you know, that's something that 
I wish we would have had more. I know why we didn't have it because the tempo was was high, but um, I think it'll be good. I think that'll weed out some of the guys that don't actually want to do do that, you know, and and draw in the ones that do. And you're going to have a much more lethal force. So I was at the division when they were starting to, they had, I think they called them like the, what did they call them? It wasn't the super squad, but it was uh, whatever it was. They kitted out one squad with all the, the kit that we would have at Marsoc, right? So everybody had comms, everybody had cans on their guns, all that kind of stuff. And we would go to um, what's in 29 Palms. Uh, CACs, EMV? CACs. We would go out and see them at CACs, right? It's been so many names since I've been in that I forget which <laughs> one we're on. So we would go out to that and watch them run whatever that range was. Is it 411 or whatever the, you know, the one where you come 410, up. 410 and 400 were the two like real big ones. Right. So it was interesting to watch that squad, the Uber squad. That's what they were calling. We would watch the Uber squad run the same thing in tandem with your standard grunt squad. And they were blowing them out of the water. Wow. Because they had the right kit, same dudes, right kit. They could all talk to each other. They all had stuff that was lighter, felt better, allowed them to maneuver. But the big thing in my opinion was communication. When you're not screaming to, to somebody who's like three hills over, you're able to just push your mic and say, hey, I need you to move here or what's going on or whatever. I mean, it was amazing. And there was, it was objective, right? Because you're literally watching them side by side, not you run, then we run. I mean, side by side, they were outmaneuvering them. They were faster. They were more efficient. And it was, it wasn't the best squad. I don't think in the battalion, it wasn't any kind of, they didn't pull all the best people into one squad. It was just like, boom, it's this squad. So if you equip a smaller number of people with the right stuff, they're going to be more lethal. They're going to be more effective. They're going to be more efficient. And, and I will just tell you from my perception, my opinion, the people that were in that squad were walking around with their heads held higher, right? Because even it's, it's cool to wear different stuff, right? But it's almost as if they knew that more effort had been put into them so they could be better. So then they acted better. So if we're able to do that with everybody and put more money into a smaller number of people, they're going to realize that we care more about them, that we want to train them to be the best. And when you, when you, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether it's a military or, you know, some organization, if you put time and money into your people, they're going to, they're going to produce. Yeah. And in this case, obviously in the military construct, that means being more lethal, right? If you're, you know, uh, some big corporate America thing, it means making more money. It's whatever your business is. But to, to your point, Polly, I think that um, it will be better because you'll have a better, a higher caliber of people. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely think so too. And that's that whole, you know, the, the look good, feel good, do good thing. And I can see how that, you know, that happens when you're, you we were junior Marines anyway, you know, you, when you end up getting that M4, and everybody else has got 16s. You're like, yep, you know, like, and you just, and I don't want to say that should make somebody perform better or not, but it, you know, it kind of did. I was talking to actually a, a, a junior guy that I didn't even know. I maybe spent time with him briefly from two eight. And I was talking with him on the phone the other night 
he was talking about being not even going on his first pump, I think. And he ended up getting a team and an M4203. And like all the senior guys that had already been on a pump are like, you know, giving him a hard time. Like, what the fuck? How'd you get that? And, you know, he didn't even realize it at the time. But, you know, I'm sure that that probably, you know, because you're proficient with any rifle, you're proficient with a smaller one. Right. So I'm sure it probably did, you know, make his chest stick out a little bit and just like, yeah, they trust me enough to to put me in this position. I'm going to show them that I can do good. And uh, yeah, I, I'm all about you know, things like that. Cause that's just, that's just motive. That's motivating trash. You know, that's what, that's what you want and to, cause you'll know if you do those things for certain guys and they're still just not performing, then you know, it's, you know, there's an issue somewhere else, but that's right. Yeah. And those are the people that you got to have that conversation with and say, Hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for your service. Right. You know, but this is, this isn't, this isn't the place for you, or, you know, maybe you would be better suited doing something else, which is fine. Yeah. It's not for everybody. Um, you know, and some people don't know that till they get going too. Yeah, and then some sure. people join just because they're trying to escape stuff, you know, or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You'll never go wrong if you invest in people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that 110%. Uh, yeah. I, I do have a question. And you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Um, I would really like to hear uh, your thoughts on um, the fall of Kabul and just the overall situation with Afghanistan. Yeah, so I will answer, but it's probably not the answer that you want. Um, and that going back to what I was talking about of the different layers behind the curtain, you know, I have opinions on it. I, I don't think it was handled well, obviously. But I also don't know, you never know what's been told to, to who. So, mm-hmm. you know, if generals that were in charge of that area were advising the administration and they didn't take it on board, or they weren't advising the administration and the administration made those decisions. So that really is my opinion on it, right? Is that if you're talking about the, you know, how it was handled, I don't, I think it was handled poorly. But I think any of us with any you know, time over there would say the same thing. Who to lay blame on or any of that kind of stuff, that's not my place to say because I don't know, I don't know who knew what. And that's the reality of it. And it's, I, I hear a lot of people casting blame and pointing fingers and doing all that kind of stuff. And I can tell you that with the exception of the people in the room who made the decisions, nobody else really is in a place where they, they can say anything other than whether or not they thought it was handled well. I think we would all agree it wasn't handled well. You know, that's, that's not uh, a, a point of contention with most. It's, it's who to blame, right? So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, you know, and then I hear a lot of people talking about, uh, and I will freely admit, and I will tell anybody who asks, I quit watching the news a very long time ago because I realized it was getting my blood pressure up over things I can't control. Mm-hmm. So I will read news, uh, you know, I will stay up to date on online because I can digest it in the chunks that I need. And it's usually just headlines because it's very hard to find anything that's unbiased. So I will see stuff about, you know, people posting, how can we leave all that gear over there? Oh, it's not, we didn't leave gear that was our gear. That gear is the gear that was left 
you know, for the, the Afghan National Army to, to do their, their business, right? Now, anybody who was over there would probably agree that we didn't see that standing because we worked with these people and, and we're trying to push our beliefs and our system onto them. Yeah. It's, I mean, they've proven over and over and over, right? And who was I talking to the other day? It was, oh, I was talking to a, a really good friend and he was an officer and he was saying that one of his young Lance Corporals said something when they were talking, this is back in Iraq, but they were saying something and, and talking about everything that was going on. And I, I probably will misquote him, but this young man said, it would probably take us as long to accept their system as it is for them to accept our system, right? It's just, it's not in their nature. It's a tribal, it's a tribal country. So why, can, why would you think that we're gonna build this big national army that's gonna have all this national pride? It's not a part of their culture. Yeah. So I can tell you, I didn't think for a second that as soon as we pulled out, they would stand up and hold their own. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, people ask, well, what do you, do you feel like it was all in vain? No, I feel that when we were over there fighting, we were keeping them at bay. And I think Jose said it earlier, I was there for my, my brothers and sisters that were over there as well. We're there because our country asked us to be there, you know, and, and do I feel that we made a big difference over there? No. Do I think that we kept things from happening here? Probably. But it's, it's one of those situations that you can't prove the negative, right? You can't prove that all this stuff would have happened if we hadn't been over there. But the fact that, you know, people will say, well, we didn't change anything over there. Well, why would we think that we would? I mean, I, I've lived in places over there that if Jesus himself had walked around the corner of a building, it would not have surprised me. You know, there's no power, there's no running water. It's buildings made out of mud and stone. I mean, it looks like biblical times. So, um, yeah, I, I probably went off on a tangent there, but my answer to your question, Jose, is um, I'm not surprised that all that stuff happened. I do think that the, you know, pulling everybody out could have been handled better. Yeah, definitely. No, and I'm not looking for a specific answer. I just, um, this is something that our generation, um, mine apologies, everyone who was a part of that saga in American history is going to have to deal with. And uh, it's just good to hear, you know, uh, diverse statements about that. Um, I think, I don't know, it's like a lot of guys that I come into contact with still don't talk about it, which, you know, they have the right to, you know, and, and peer support, you know, when you're dealing with all that stuff, you know, it's like everyone has the right to feel a certain way. But I do think that withholding it for very long periods of time is very detrimental to your overall psyche. And, uh, you know, the more we discuss and have dialogue and conversation deliberate that, you know, this, whatever this is in here might, you know, quail a little bit. I appreciate that when all that was going down, and I, I got to be honest, like I said, I didn't, I don't think I knew until the next morning because I don't watch the news at all. So I was like, oh, stuff's popping off, right? And, and all this happened. I appreciate that I had a bunch of civilian friends reach out, hey, you doing okay? And I think that might've been the first thing that alerted me, actually. I'm like, what, what's going on? And then, of course, you know, a bunch of the, the guys that I've been in teams with, we all have, I'm sure you all have like several group chats, you know, where it ranges everything from 
poking at each other and taking jabs to when stuff that's serious is going on or somebody's having a hard time and we all like rally around that person. So I appreciated all of that stuff that was happening. Me personally, I didn't struggle with the fall of Afghanistan because I, again, I saw, you know, I could have told you that was going to happen, right? In my opinion, I, I felt really bad for all the stuff that happened with what was going on in Kabul when, when they were pulling out and that SB, uh, uh, suicide vest went off and all that stuff. I mean, that sucks. And I think that any of us who have been over there and dealt with everything, as far as losing people, the one thing that, you know, that's usually the question that comes up, right, is, was it in vain? Did they, you know, and I assume, you know, just from the stories and, and the podcasts that I've listened to of yours, everybody's experienced that. We've all experienced loss. We've all experienced all the, the gory stuff that goes on over there. And so you, it's right to question, you know, was what we were doing over there just or worth it or whatever. Me personally, I don't struggle with that because again, I feel that I was there for, you know, the person on my left and the person on my right. And I was there to hopefully keep them from doing stuff over here because of what you were talking about as well, Jose, earlier is all this stuff that's going on with the internet and, you know, just there's so much going on, so much information that's out there. And I feel that we're able to keep a lot of the people that may have been homegrown here uh, at bay over there because we were keeping them busy, to be honest. So that's how I sleep well at night. And then just the reality too is, is just remembering the, you know, our fallen, right? Remembering the people that we lost, honoring them by living the best way that we can live. And, you know, remembering the days that we lost them. And, and when people here are struggling, reaching out and talking to them, you know, and, and that's where that network, you've got to keep that network. And if I could say anything to anybody, you know, who's been downrange or struggling with anything, it doesn't even have to be combat stuff. If you're struggling, you know, a lot of the, the, the things that we were seeing as I became the old guy, the fat old guy behind the desk, none of the people that we were losing had been to combat. A lot of them had even, even deployed. It was all relationship stuff or whatever. And that to me is super sad because how many people are around, you know, that young person who took their life that could have pulled them aside and said, hey, what's going on? You know, your girlfriend broke up with you. Your boyfriend broke up with you. Okay, I got it. That sucks. Let's talk through it. Let's figure it out. You know, and, and so for the, the younger generation, and this is where I think there is something new going on because they communicate differently than my generation. My generation is a phone call or let's grab a beer or whatever. And you're, you're talking. The, the new generation is very um, social media based or, you know, they talk in a different way. And it was not uncommon to see people in one room talking to people in another room on their phones, as opposed to getting out on the balconies of the barracks, right. And, and, and causing mayhem and mischief. Like that's, that's what made things fun when we were, when we, my generation was younger, and thank God there was no social media back then. But, you know, it's also those shared experiences and, and, um, and knowing that if some girl broke your heart, you had your buddies there, you could talk to about it, right? And work through whatever was going on. And for them, especially if you were a super young guy, then the older guy would be like, hey, bro, don't worry about it. It happens to everybody. You know, you're not the first one to have their heart broken, right? And to work through that stuff. It's to me, it sucks when you see 
relationships as kind of when we do the, you know, the after action and really dig into it and you see like, wow, that's what it was. And that's tough to deal with. That is tough stuff. But gosh, man, that's, that to me is, that's tragic, right? Um, because I feel that, it, and maybe it's just my generation or, or my experiences, I should say, I'm very well connected with all, a lot of, of the people that I've deployed with and all that. And of course people struggle. And of course people are having a hard time. And that's when, you know, the mass text will go out like, Hey, so-and-so needs, you know, let's, let's, let's help them. Let's rally. You know, and if that means going over to somebody's house, cool. If that means everybody's calling or texting or, or whatever that is. Um, but I don't think that's happening at the non-combat veteran or non-combat person level, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you're, you're pretty accurate there because I do know some friends that, that never, you know, made the trip down there or, you know, just weren't weren't in the right field for it and they don't their community's different i mean it's it's not it's not as tightly knit as you know some of the ones that that did so and that is sad um because no matter what you know you still share experiences with people and i think you know shouldn't let shouldn't be disappointed by that and not want to you know continue those relationships but and again, it all boils down to people. If you yeah. create a culture where everybody appreciates and loves, loves each other, you know, you're not going to have that person who feels isolated and like they have nobody to talk to yeah. with whatever's going on, right? Because somebody breaking up with somebody might be the worst thing that person's ever experienced, right? Or they didn't get promoted or they got in JP because they got a DUI or I don't know, whatever. But people need to, to be there for each other to, to sit down and just listen and say, okay, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one thing that, you know, I'm grateful for out of my time in is just that, I don't know, it's not, I'm very passionate about a lot of things, but like, like little trivial problems when I see people that are directly around me in my life getting worked up about them, like it just, it, it's almost sad to me. It just, it's like so upsetting. I'm like, man, it's not, this is, we can, we can figure this out. It's not, we don't need a trip. You got me the wrong kind of coffee, you know, to my wife. It's okay. I'm going to drink it still. I'm not that picky. You know me. And it's just, you know, I don't know. It, it, everything doesn't have to be a problem. You know, there's a solution to everything. And I think people are just so wrapped up around, talking about why something is or they believe something is a problem instead of how how to get past it and um i that's, think that's a lot of that is the world anymore it's just you know i don't know it's back to that victim versus creator right it's so much easier to play the victim than to say okay i didn't get the right coffee is it is it the end of the, am i still going to drink it yep okay cool am i not no this this Coffee is absolutely not what I want to drink. So then you just go back up and, and say, hey, you know, I, I need a different cup of coffee. This one's not right. Or maybe you drink tea that day. Right. No, I'm just the kind of guy that's just like, I'm going to drink it and not say anything. I'm not right. going to upset you. This is not a non-issue here. But yeah, you got me the wrong coffee. It's fine. You know, but anyway. Yeah, I, I, I wish. And that's one thing about service, man. I think that that a lot of people that don't experience that. Now I, I don't think 
we should be like some other countries do where you're, you know, you're mandated one or two years of service. I don't believe in that all volunteer forces for how you get these, you know, these um, exceptional individuals serving and doing the right things. But that is one good thing that I think comes from it is no matter what you did or, or where you went or anything, it does teach you like you were talking about earlier that, you know, that just dynamic group of individuals from who knows where and who knows what background all coming together and and working together as a team no matter if you're a gunfighter or you know whatever job you're doing you 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 learn to accept people on a different level when you're forced to be around them and live with them and deal with their you know whatever you know like i've talked about some people just got you know hygiene issues and they can't help it and they stink or they got stinky feet and you're, you got to deal with that. And, but you still got to love and care about them and work with them. So I think that's one great thing the military does offers. You just, I, you're just more accepting of people from all different backgrounds and. It definitely, you, yeah, it definitely matures you and makes you more worldly in that sense. Yeah. You know, sure. of, I will, I would go a step further and say, not even just understanding, but appreciating understanding what other people go through and then appreciating where they come from and appreciating them as a person and what they bring. Yeah. If, if you're from the North and, and you're in, in a unit with somebody from the South, you know, they, they bring a whole different culture than what you've grown up with. Right. And how amazing is that when you come together and you discover real maple syrup for the first time <laughs> as you're pouring it over fried chicken and waffles, like that's the perfect merger of two cultures yeah yeah and when you're all from the same country and you're like what the how did i not know about this you know you yeah you just it's awesome that's why i think you know it, it would be great if everyone would do it but i don't believe everyone should do it i just wish they could find a way to grow that way without need you know needing to to take those steps that you know we did or um i think that's our responsibility as veterans just as I said earlier, if you came from a great unit and you landed in a sour unit, be that ripple that starts, or be that drop that starts the ripple in that unit. So as veterans who have had these experiences and know that we really all can get along and that we really all need to appreciate each other, I feel that it's our job to, to spread that into our country as much as we possibly can smile at people. We're, we're taught to do that right out of boot camp, right? If you see somebody across the street, you acknowledge them. You wave, you say hi. If they're close enough, you say hi, you greet them, you say good morning. How many people don't do that in the world? And how many people's day might be changed if in passing, you just smiled at them and said, hey, good morning, how you doing? And appreciate them for whatever they bring you know, to, to the world, right? If we can do that as veterans, I feel that's our gift to the, to the country after service is to, to kind of push out our leadership skills and to push out our ability to understand and appreciate each other for our own unique qualities. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. That's just being a good person. You know, it's not that difficult, but some people like to make it out like it is. And it's, um, it's sad because you're kind of giving up your 
your life, you know, but so you like, so you like surfing. Let's get into what some of your, what you like to do. Keep, keep your head on straight. Yeah, how, how, a, how long have you, how long have you been surfing for? I started surfing in high school when we moved to, we moved from 29 Palms to Pensacola. I can't think of the word, uh, which is a Gulf, you know, obviously a Gulf state. So the surf is definitely not great there, but I started surfing there. And then just throughout the years, you know, wherever I was, got into it more and more. And I, I call myself a happily average surfer. I'll never be, <laughs> you know, I'll never be more than that. I, I try to get stronger in the water so I can, you know, catch more waves and, and surf anywhere and for longer and all that stuff. But especially as I'm old and, and all that, I didn't start surfing when I was five or anything. But for me, it's, it's interesting because there are times when I love to be in the water with other people and the social aspect of it. And then there are times when I love to be in the water by myself or maybe with just one other buddy. And we might not say anything to each other for an hour and a half, you know, but it's just that um, it's, it's a place for me. I'm reading a book right now and several people have recommended it. Uh, I just started, so I can't tell you how it is, but it's called, um, well, I'm not going to be able to remember the name, like Blue Mind, I think. And it's all about how people that are near the water, around the water, in the water, have happier lives because there's something about just water. And I believe that, you know, just even without reading the book, I love being in the water. I always have. My mom, when she was pregnant with me, my folks were river rats. They lived in, in uh, near the Colorado River, you know, in California. And so they were always skiing and all that stuff. And then they moved to Hawaii. I was actually born in Hawaii. And my mom, I guess up until maybe eight months or something pregnancy wise, she was still snorkeling with, you know, so she and I both agree that it's probably that, that has, you know, given me that love of water. But when I'm in the water, I just feel, and it was, I think I was talking about earlier when I, I stopped running. So I was not surfing or not in the water as much because I was really focused on training for, you know, all the running that I was doing. And I feel that whenever, and I, I would find peace in running because I would go out and run for a really long time, but it wasn't the same. It's not the same as when I'm in the water, whether I'm surfing or paddling or just floating in the pool, there's something about that. Just, I feel like it's washing everything off of you or something. I don't know. It's weird. So yes, that is definitely my happy place and where I try to spend a lot of time. Yeah. That's awesome. Have you, have you gone on any trips like back to Hawaii to surf and, or anywhere outside of the country? I've, I've been to Hawaii a couple of times, mainly because friends were over there and, you know, I've surfed uh, some of the smaller breaks where, you know, I'm not going to get killed yeah. and not get, not get beat up by the locals, you know, and, right. and so it's, it's all, yeah, it's, it's fun. Uh, I've surfed in Japan. I've surfed of course all around the United States and I went on a surf trip to Nicaragua the year before COVID, I think. So that's the other thing that I appreciate about being retired now is I've got more time to do that kind of stuff. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I, going to other countries, we like to do it when we're here because, you know, in the winter when it's super cold. And if you go, like when we went to Nicaragua, we went, I forget what month it was, but it was cold here. We were still in full 
full-blown wetsuits, hoods, gloves, all that stuff. And you go there and you're in trunks. Right. And you're like, okay, it's just that little break you need. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then you can just relax and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, I, I hope many more trips are in my future. Yeah, that's cool. And then traveling with the family too. That's a big thing on my, my to-do list. Hopefully traveling to places that also have surf, but I know there will be a few that won't, which is fine. But uh, yeah, we, we want to travel a lot and, and just get out and see the world. My wife has seen more of Europe than I have, and I've seen more of the Pacific than she has. And my daughter's never been out of the country, just you know, from moving and work and all that kind of stuff. So it, it will be cool, hopefully, when she graduates to go on some big trip and you know celebrate her making it through high school and all that kind of stuff before she goes off to college. And then hopefully many more trips after that. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I feel like we're at a good point. Is there anything else you want to bring up or talk about or any notable figures in your career, um, you know, that maybe help guide you, you know, get you, get you through it and get you to your, on your path of success. Yeah. Just kind of closing up my, obviously my dad was a huge inspiration, my mom and my family. I mean, you know, my, my wife and daughter, when I was making the decision whether or not to retire, my wife, I was, you know, we were talking about it a lot and, and she, we met in 95. So we've been together a long time and she's always been beyond supportive, no matter what I wanted to do. You know, it was always, her answer was always, I'll support whatever you want to do. And when I asked her, you know, we we're starting to have that retirement conversation. She's like, whatever you want to do. I'm like, okay, I, I know, but I need, I need a little more. Right. And so when my daughter goes to camp, I will always take leave during that time frame, and we just hang out, right, and have so much fun. And my wife said something to that effect of, I can't wait to get the, the summer Jody, right? And that was, that was a huge piece of it. I knew I wasn't going to go. There's nowhere else I wanted to go after the job that I had that I retired out of. And, and this didn't this wasn't the reason I retired at all, but it definitely was like kind of the cherry on top. If I left when I did, it gave somebody else who I wanted to have that job or at least have the opportunity for that job. It gave that person the opportunity to take it. If I had stayed my full 30, they would have not been in the cycle for that. So they wouldn't have been considered. Right. So again, that was just the cherry on top of it all. Um, and that's when we asked the magic eight ball and I'm, I'm not kidding about that. My wife's like, let's mass ask the magic eight ball. So we did. And I dropped papers the next day, but back to your point of people that were always there supporting me. My wife has been amazing. My daughter has been amazing the whole time. You know, my, my, my folks, uh, my in-laws, because obviously, you know, we've all been all over the place and done a whole bunch of stuff. And my wife always said the deployments weren't as hard they suck because you're away, but it, it was easier than the workups because the workups is when you're gone for a week, home for a day, gone for two weeks, home for a weekend, you know, and that is disruptive as opposed to, you know, you, you get the kiss and we'll see you in six months and then you come back. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, so she's, she's always been super supportive and uh, yeah, you know, that's, the other, there's no, I don't have anybody in the military who I can say that's the person that, because there were, A, there were so many, B, 
people that were above me that I was learning from, that were mentoring me, that were helping me, I guess, I've always done things because it looked fun or somebody said, hey, we need you to do this. And there were people just, I have no idea how I ended up where I did. I told people that all the time, no clue. I didn't aspire to be where I ended up. I didn't aspire to any of that. I just wanted to have fun and be around people that were cool and, and wanted to be there. So really it was all of those people, every team I was in, every, every job I had, I was surrounded by so many amazing people. They were my mentors, right? They're the people that make you better because they're so awesome. You want to be awesome too. And, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it was like being in a river where you're just flowing with it, right? There was not that one person who I was like, oh, this is the person who, who taught me the way. It was just being in a river surrounded by people that were, that were flowing all of us down, you know, down the, down the river, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that you probably, well, you spent a long time in and you probably spent a lot of time with a lot of, you know, good people. So, um, well, it's good stuff. I appreciate you coming on here and talking with us and happy belated birthday. Thanks. Yeah. I've still got a, a few more years before I cross the big five Oh, but uh, definitely getting up there, but it's been awesome. And I appreciate y'all bringing me on. It's, you know, gosh, been two, a little over two hours and it went by quick. I, it's, it's been really fun. Yeah. 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 Awesome story. I appreciate you sharing with us, man. Yeah. Thank you, Jody. Appreciate you, man. And All welcome right. to Civ Div. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I'm going to start recording.